0: This month, we're in this series about the return of Jesus, the second coming. It's an important part of our, of our faith. It's an important teaching. Now, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time on it. Uh, some churches spend too much time on it. But primarily, that's because there's not a whole lot shared with us. There are some important things. And what's really important, we want to know. Now, a lot of people try to fill in the gaps with a lot of information that's not necessarily found in the New Testament. And sometimes they make stuff up. But, you know, there's enough there. And one of the things to me that I think that's so important is I look at the second coming of Christ. And one of the things that I say uh, to people a lot is that, listen, when Jesus comes, he's going to sort it all out. He really will. And he'll get everything exactly the way he wants it to be. I'm going to be good with whatever he decides. I'm, I'm, I'm with him. And, and that's really kind of the title of the sermon series, Sorted, The Return of Jesus and the End of It All. He's going to come. Everything's over. He's going to sort it all out. Now, the thing that I've really tried to drive home, and I'm going to continue to drive home the next two weeks, is a very simple statement, a very simple fact, which is this, that one day Jesus will return, And he will make all things right. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that when he comes, he's going to make everything just the way it needs to be. That's an encouragement to us in in living our life. Now, we've seen so far that he's coming someday. And in that message, we said, listen, Jesus didn't know when he's returning. He said, you're not going to know. Don't try to worry about it. Our focus should be on sharing the gospel. We also saw last week that he's going to come at some times and set all things right. That there's a judgment and that judgment, everything gets squared. Everything will be settled the way he wants to settle it. Well, today, we're going to come and, and to learn that there's more than just this life. There's more to life. And when I mean that, I mean there's more than just this flesh and blood life. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, so in verses 50 to 58 there. And in this message, what I, what I really am doing is kind of answering the question that's, that to me is legit. It's a very personal question that I think all of us ask it sometimes. And what we ask is this, when Jesus returns, what happens to me? I kind of like to know that. I kind of like to know, hey, Jesus, when you return, what's going to really happen to me? And I think that's legitimate, and I think it's normal to think that way. And so we're going to look at that question, and I'm going to share three things with you in the message today to kind of help us get there. And I'm going to start by talking about a problem at church. Now, I'm not talking about a problem at our church, you know. I'm not saying we don't have any. I just don't like to, you know, I'm I'm not sharing what they are if we do. I grew up in a home that whatever problems you have, you keep them, you know, you, you don't share it, you don't, you bury it, don't let anybody know about it. You know, that, that's a good strategy, I think, you know, I do that at church. We got a problem, man, let's not share it. With too many people. But the church that I'm talking about is the church at Corinth. You know, we, we come to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we see this church at Corinth that had so many problems, and, and I'm kind of glad they did, because because of all these problems um, Paul wrote some amazing letters. He actually wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. We only have two, but he gives us some amazing information in these two letters, these two books uh, that we have. And, and at the end of 1 Corinthians, after he's dealt with so many other things, he's dealing with the concern that has arisen and really kind of dealing with the question of what happens to me? And what is, There's a, a problem there, and the problem is about the end times and that people are saying, hey, you know, there are some that are saying there's no real resurrection of the believer. And what they've done in essence is they begin to make stuff up to try to fill in the gaps, and they end up being contradictory, and they're contradicting the things that they believe. They're contradicting the things that maybe Paul taught. They're contradicting things that they would have learned from Paul about Jesus. And so in the first Corinthians chapter 15, what you have is this concern about the resurrection. The first 11 verses were important. And I've actually preached from the first 11 verses a lot. I preached several times uh, about the resurrection of Jesus, you know, the uh, but that people saw him alive because in those first 11 verses, we get the essence of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scripture and that people saw him alive. And Paul goes on to list the list of people that saw Jesus alive. And that's an important list that includes Paul. And that's a lot of the evidence we talk about for the resurrection that people saw him alive. But he deals with the fact that people are questioning the resurrection. Of the believer, and so in verses twelve through nineteen, he deals with that. In verses twenty through verses forty-nine, he kind of affirms that resurrection. Then you get to the verses that we're going to be today, in verse fifty through fifty-eight. So I want to pick up with verse twelve. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And in other words, everybody believes that Jesus rose from the dead. That is not the issue. The issue is that some of them are saying, well, Jesus may have rose from the dead, we won't. And Paul is saying, well, how can you say we're not going to rise from the dead, but yet you believe Jesus did? Because Jesus is human, just like we are. He's fully God, fully man, but he's still flesh and blood. And if that flesh and blood rose from the grave, why don't you believe that we can rise up from the dead as well? And that's the problem. You can't have it both ways. Now, we may want to know, well, how did they come about this? or Why did they think this way? Well, the church of Corinth, they had, it's primarily Gentiles, and they had a very Greek mindset. Um, remember last week we saw uh, when Paul was in Athens preaching. One of the things I told you that for all the disagreements that they had at Athens, for all the things about the philosophies and all that, the one thing they would agree upon was that there was no such thing as a resurrection. They would all agree upon that. Well, evidently, that mindset of the Greek philosophy had crept into the church through some of the Gentiles. They began to teach, well, well you know, we don't believe in a resurrection. Now, we, we may wonder how they came about that. And it's really simple. To the, to the Greek, the person was separated into two distinct parts. There's the physical and the spiritual. The physical was bad, the spiritual was good, and they would say that the two don't influence each other. That there's a complete separation, a complete break between the physical and the spiritual. And so the physical is bad, it deteriorates, it's corrupted, and the spiritual lives on. Now, Jews didn't think that way. Jews believed that we were a totality of self, that the physical and spiritual both existed, but they were connected together to make up the whole person, which is what we believe as a church. The Judeo-Christian worldview, that's how we look at things. And so the Jews believed in resurrection. The Sadducees were a part of the Jews that did, but there were no Sadducees who were Christians. So any Jewish Christian was going to believe in the resurrection so you can see this problem that exists. And Paul's saying, you're contradicting yourself. You're contradicting. Hey, let's going? You okay? Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't blame you. It's a cool place to be up here. Get the spotlight and get the microphone and all that. Paul would say that, that you're contradicting yourself because you're, you're saying that Jesus can be raised back to life, but you can't. Not only that, you would technically are contradicting Jesus himself. I mean, it, they didn't have the book of John yet. John hadn't written it, but they would have things that Jesus said. And in John 6, 40, this is what it says. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son, this is Jesus talking, and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus is saying, I will raise up the believer on the last day. That's an amazing statement. I mean, Jesus said on the last day, I'm gonna raise you up. So embedded in our Christian belief and philosophy and thought and theology is that Jesus is gonna raise us up. So how can, how can you disagree with that? They had let the culture around them creep into the church. They had began to adopt the world around them. Back in January, I preached a series about, you know, the culture from the book of Hebrews. And one of the things I said, and I made clear, is that while you can engage the culture on a daily basis, you can not embrace them. You can't wrap your arms around them and embrace them. See, here's what's happening here. Here's the danger. It is dangerous to let contemporary cultural ideas and standards influence our Christian faith. It is dangerous to let the culture influence our faith. And that's where they were. They had let the culture creep in to their church. They had a problem at church. And with that, the second thing I want you to see, then is a clear solution. So Paul has a solution to all of that. And we see in verses 50 through 58. Now, these are read oftentimes at funerals. And they're, they're powerful verses. Now, they can seem a little complicated. And they can seem complicated and difficult because there's a lot of repetition. And with the repetition, there's a lot of parallel statements. Parallel statements add emphasis to it. But there's also something else. If you read through it, and you're really good at English grammar, you might notice there's a lot of future passes. Future passive is like the phrase will be. It's future, will. It's passive. It's be. It's really good in Greek. It's horrible in English. And I know that because, you know, whenever I wrote that way, I mean, like, you know, the three years I took freshman English. I mean, I just struggled with that the whole time, you know, just the future passes. And and speaking is normative. I mean, it's a casual way to speak and we do all the time. So you might say, hey, Dave, David, you know, after church, you're going to come over and watch the cowboy game. And I say, yes, I will be there about 2.15. And that's future passive, I will be there. But that's, that's the way we talk, it's casual. I'm not gonna be formal, you don't want me to say, hey David, you wanna come watch the cowboy game? And I'll say yes, I will arrive at about we 2.15. Don't, we don't talk, and people talk like that, like, well, I think I changed my mind. You know, and we don't, that's not how we talk. But we can't write with future passives. I mean, it just looks sloppy. For instance, we, we try to get rid of those. If I say, if we say, hey, listen, we will be having church at 8:30 9:45 11 and 12:15 that's just sloppy it's ugly you don't want to write that way what we want to say is we will worship at 8:30 45, 11 and 12:15 there's a distinction in formality in greek the purpose of the future passive what it does is it drives home the point it's emphatic it gives it gives meat to it And you'll see this in just a minute. While it may look a little awkward sometimes when we read it, it's driving home an important part. Verse 50, now I say this. Brothers. Now, some of your versions have brothers and sisters. In fact, this actually had brothers and sisters, and the sisters was in italics, and I took it out because in the original Greek, it doesn't say sisters. I know people struggle with this. It's not that big a deal. If you struggle with this, that it just says brothers, not brothers and sisters, let me just give you some sound advice that will help you work through it. The advice is this, just grow up. Come on, seriously. I mean, later on, you know, in the scriptures, the, the church is called the bride of Jesus. I don't, I don't get bent out of shape because the church is called the bride. I'm not like, well, I'd rather it be called the groom. I feel left out. And just, just, it's cool. I mean, you, you, everybody's included in this. Now, I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the phrase kingdom of God is really important because it has to do with the reign and rule of God in our life. I mean, God God is his kingdom. He reigns and rules over everything. I realize that we like to say, well, you know, Satan rules the world. He's in charge and all that. Well, he's not really. I mean, from the moment God created whatever God created, everything in his creation is his. He's always in charge. Does he allow things to happen? Yeah, he does. He's still in charge. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm a part of his kingdom. As a follower of Jesus, I have given myself to him, so I really am part of his kingdom. And his kingdom is right now. I mean, Jesus shows up, he says, hey, the kingdom is here. We live there in the kingdom. But there's a future aspect to the kingdom as well. There's the eternal aspect, and this is what they're dealing with, the eternal aspect of the kingdom, the future. You can't inherit that. inherit that. Flesh and blood doesn't get that. And flesh and blood just means this, the, the blood, and, you know, the, us, the physical body. This body, this body, is not going to be like this in all eternity. Kind of glad, getting something a little bit better. I'm hoping, you know. You know, some there's some discussion. Is he talking about the people that were living then, and saying you won't get to inherit the kingdom? Well, to some degree, but really, every person who lives, ever lives, is in some way flesh and blood. Even when you when you die. And you're buried, the, 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 the flesh, you know, decomposes and your bones, and, and, but you got something there that's decomposed. If you're, you know, cremated, you got, you know, the ashes. If there's something else that happened, whatever. Alive or dead, the physical body in whatever state it is in does not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So in this capacity, you sure. don't get to go into eternity Verse 51 says this, Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. I'm telling you something that you may not realize, but I'll make known to you. And here's, here's, here's what it begins to say. We will not all sleep. The idea of sleeping is death. It was just a, a, a way of saying death. But get this, we will all be changed. There's that, that, that future passive I told you about. Notice what it says. Not everyone's going to die. And those of you that won't die, I got news for you. You will be changed. Now, the idea of changing is something, well, it's just something happens. Life changes. Sometimes it's sudden. Sometimes it's gradual. I look at my life. Things change, man. Hair leaves. Then one or two, it did. Over time, it changed. You know, this is the, the fourth service, you know. <laughs> when this service is over, I'm going I'm to feel my age. There was a time when I was younger. I could have probably gone six, seven deep. But now it's just like things change in time. We will all change. We will all be changed. It says, in a moment, that's the word moment is the word we get Adam from. In Greek, it's the smallest unit that can't be divided. In the smallest of moments, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound. The idea of a trumpet came from Jewish life, whether it was the trumpet of worship or battle or whatever. He says, when that happens like that, notice the dead will be raised and perishable. Notice what he's saying. Those who are not asleep will be changed. And the dead, in whatever capacity, will be future passive. They will be raised. They have no say of it, no control. They're going to be, they're going to be raised up. He's already established that earlier in First Corinthians fifteen, but he's, he's reminding you are going to be raised up, and then we will all be changed. We won't be like this. It's important. Here is why it's important: transformation is needed to enter the finality of heaven. Whatever the finality of heaven is, transformation is needed. I'm not getting in in this way. I'm going to explain it to you more in a minute. This isn't getting there. And it tells us in verse 53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. So he's using parallel statements saying the physical has to put on something that is eternal. And then he, he takes Isaiah 25, 8 and Isaiah 13, 14, and he combines them. And he says this, death then has been swallowed up in victory. Death, death is our enemy. It is our ultimate enemy from the moment of conception. From the moment of conception, we head towards death. It's the result of sin. It's the result of living in rebellion against God. We saw that last week. You know, in judgment, you go back to Genesis chapter 2. If you're going to rebel against me, you're going to die. And you die in totality. The spiritual, the physical begins to decay and die. Death is the enemy in every capacity. He says it's been swallowed up in victory. The word victory, anybody here wearing any Nike clothing? That word Nike is the Greek word victory. Now, hopefully that's not what he means. We're wearing Nike apparel, but where, o oh, death, is your victory? Where, o oh, death, is your sting? Now, these, these two phrases, these parallel phrases, he's actually kind of taunting death. There's some football games going on right now that, you know, because we're all here, we're missing between the 11 and twelve fifteen, I checked. The Cowboys aren't playing yet, so it's okay. When they're playing, it's like somebody's in the back just giving me updates constantly, you know. And somewhere in the course of the football game, there's going to be some taunting going on, right? I mean, there's always going to be some taunting. You know, I'm a, I'm a Longhorn. You're an Aggie. There's always taunting, you know, going on. Longhorns and Aggies because, you know, that's the way we do things. So there's always going to be some taunting. You want to be the taunter. You don't want to be the taunted, you know. You want to be on the good side of the taunting. And that's kind of what Paul is talking. He says, "Death, you ain't winning anymore. Where's your your sting? The idea of sting, you know, you think of a bee sting or you think of something like that, it hurts. It's almost the idea of of a viper. Later on, the book of Acts tells us Paul got bit by a viper and shook it off. It's a poisonous snake injecting that poison. You know, if, I, if you've ever been bitten by a poisonous snake, you know, you know it hurts. I haven't been, but it does. You know, a rattlesnake, a water moccasin, a coral, a copper's head, a coral, that's, that's, that's our, you know, in America, that's it. I've heard people say, well, you know, I tangled with a grass snake once. Well, if you're biggest, you know, if you've tangled with this grass snake and, that, and you lost that, I don't, no one wants to hear about that. No one wants to hear, oh, the grass snake got the best of me, Pastor. It was a rough one. No, nobody, nobody cares. Notice what he says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin. He says, the sting, what is the poison? The poison that kills you comes from sin, our great enemy. The power of sin, the force of sin is the law that tells us right from wrong. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise God why. He gives us the victory, the agent of our victory." is Jesus. We've won. Death doesn't have that power over us. Now, some people may say, you know, Paul, Paul's not dealing with the intermediate state. You know, there's this intermediate state, but before the coming of Jesus, when we die, what happens? And we say, well, our soul goes to be with Jesus. And I I get that. And, and, And Paul's not dealing with that. We Understand that's there, some scripture. And, and some people you know, may say, well, you know, if our soul goes to be with Jesus, well, why isn't that enough? And so what we need to understand, but this is so important. I want you to get this. If there is no resurrection and restoration of our total self, then sin and death have won a major victory. If there is no resurrection back from death, if the physical doesn't get restored, sin wins. I mean, the, the, the sin destroys Sin thwarts the will of God. It attempts to, anyways. If there is no resurrection, if there's no restoration of your body, then sin and death won. The whole person isn't with Jesus. Um, last October, Debbie passed away. And uh, I remember when she died. And at that, at that second, I knew she was no longer alive. I thought of her with Jesus. And so when I thought of her, I thought of the whole cell. I thought of her. I didn't think of her as she was laying there, and that, and, you know, having been tarnished by cancer. I just thought of that beautiful, gorgeous woman that I knew. It was with Jesus. But I thought of her physically. Even though I knew in my mind that the physical part wasn't there, I don't know how to think of the soul. Do you? I don't. I don't, have, I don't know what the soul looks like. So I understood it was just your soul. But I also understood at some point that physical gets to be there. And the totality will be there. That's the beauty of what Paul is saying. One day, all of us is there. They had a problem. Paul gave them an important solution that matters. And so the third thing I'm going to share with you is this. Live your life until Jesus returns. Just live. I mean, we saw that two weeks ago when Jesus said, you're not going to know when I come. Just share the gospel. Live your life until Jesus returns. Verse 58 says this, therefore, in light of everything, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast. Just be there. Keep working. Knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not lost anything in the Lord. In other words... You guys, don't worry about it. Everything's gonna be restored the way it needs to be. So you just keep serving Jesus, knowing that in the end, he'll take care of everything. I'm gonna share with you four things about resurrection and then I'm gonna make a concluding statement to just get this through, our resurrection. Resurrection deals with the value of life given by God. From the moment of conception, life has value. In October, I'm preaching about being human, being me. The first message will be from Genesis, a passage I preach from a lot about being created in the image of God. And I will say then, what I say all the time, from the moment of conception, there is the image of God present. Life has value. And sin damages the value of life. In resurrection says life has value. The value that it needs to have it matters. It matters in the totality of what it is. Resurrection puts an end to the effects of sin for the believer. The impact of sin is it begins to destroy and take away. And resurrection puts an end to the impact of sin. You know, I, I, you know, I think, you know, of, of, of the impact of sin in my life and the physical aspects and how it affects humanity and creation. If there is no resurrection of the all of me, Sin wins. Sin got a victory. The effect of sin is undone for the believer. There is no impact of sin upon my life. Resurrection restores creation to God's original intent. Resurrection takes the intent of God and puts it all back to place. In the book of Revelation, he says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven, a new earth. In other words, sin has done some damage to how the earth is supposed to be and, and, and to whatever that's told by the idea of heaven. And so it's going to be restored. If you go to the book of Genesis, there was an idea. That's what God wanted. And we were part of that. Sin damaged all that. If God doesn't restore things back the way it should be, at least, if not better, sin wins. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I, mean, I think there's some sense of whatever Genesis looked like. There's heaven. I think there's some of that. And, I, but, and I'm not saying it's all of that, but I'm just telling you, whatever Genesis intended, at the very least, it gets restored back to that. It gets to be the way God intended it to be. Resurrection gives meaning in, to faith and morality. I mean, if there's no resurrection, why are we doing this? Why are we here? Why are you a of Jesus if this life is all there is? Why have faith? Why have morality? Why live moral life? But what resurrection does, it gives meaning to faith. It gives meaning to the morality of our lives. Says it matters. Here's the thing. At some point, the follower of Jesus will become what God always intended him or her to be. This is so cool. This is so important. At some point, as a follower of Jesus, at some point, I'll become what God always wanted me to be. That's amazing. That after all that I have done in my rebellion against God, after all the sin of my life, there will come a point where I get to be everything God ever wanted me to be. That's a good thing. Friday I was reading in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus had, you know, been doing the Sermon on the Mount thing, and he was coming down. There was a leper waiting for him. Now, lepers were the scourge of society. It was a horrible disease that they had. We don't really see it today because we have hygiene, you know, we we have things to fight infection. But leprosy would just destroy our life. And it was highly contagious. There was no cure. So lepers were outcasts, man. They could not hang with people. Lepers can only hang with other lepers. You couldn't hug anybody, couldn't touch anything, couldn't be with your family. I mean, it was a horrible, it was called walking death. It was such a horrible existence. And if you came into the the culture around you, that came into society, you had to yell out that you were a leper. I'm a leper, I'm a leper, get away. And there was this leper just waiting for Jesus. And everybody would have been shocked everybody would have been appalled. They would have been yelling at him and and screaming at him to get away, but he wouldn't. And Jesus came down and he faced that leper and nobody was around me. I mean, they would have all cleared social distancing stuff way back, even the disciples. And he stood in front of Jesus. And he said, Lord, if you're willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. I mean, Jesus, I, I want you to. And I, I believe you can do it, but Jesus, it's up to you. If you want to, you can make me clean. And it says Jesus touched him, and that doesn't mean he just touched him, but it means more that he, he reached out, and he took that leper, and he pulled him in. He says, I want to. I want to make you clean. At that moment, his body was restored to the way it was meant to be. When Jesus returns, our bodies, broken, tattered with sin, dead in the ground, burned ashes, whatever it is, our bodies will be restored to the way it was always meant to be. In our body and our soul, the total self, all of me, will be just the way God wanted me to be. And so I said at the beginning, when Jesus returns, what happens to me? What happens to me? is I get to be the me God always wanted me to be. I get to be the me God always wanted me to be. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, well, next week I'll deal with that. But I can tell you, it's just not good. So if you've never trusted Christ to be your savior, why don't you do that? Why don't you trust Christ and the effects of sin will be taken from your life, the spiritual aspect for certainly, and knowing that at some point, all of you will get to be the way you're supposed to be. If you want to give your life to Jesus and never had, have, there'll be a few of us down here who can come and trust Christ. If you want us to pray with you, we will. If you want us to join our church, you will. I don't, I don't know what God wants. You can experience whatever it is, but know this. When you walk out of here today, be sure of this. Be sure you know this. Be sure that you leave today knowing that you can be Everything God wants you to be. So fathers, we come before you. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be clean. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved, that there's no more power of sin, there's no more power of death. There's no victory for that enemy. It's the victory is ours in you. So make us whole, Make us clean. God, make us to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come? And you rise.